You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. Trent Fleskins, your host as always. We have Chris Ferreira from The Forever Project back in again to chat for a second time mm. on our top tips for reducing our energy bill and our water bill. Mm. Chris, thanks for coming mm. in again, mate. Pleasure. I ran in today, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I'm super interested in this side because mm. it's one of those ones where you can control the outcome, right? Yes. And yep. not only just from uh, a new build or a new mm. development, mm. but also things we can change along the yeah, way too. Because one thing I think that is for certain, they always say death and taxes, right? Yes. I think the third one these days is increasing utility bills. Oh, and... Uh, it's a it's a great way to start, and I always muse on this. Though we have lost five prime ministers and countless premiers exactly on utilities and a price on carbon and power bills going up. And Tony Abbott, I think, shamelessly exploited this idea that we have this deep seated hatred of increased power bills. Okay, the reality is, I hope for enlightened leaders who will say our power prices and our water prices have to go up dot, 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 dot. But my government is committed to helping you slash your consumption because we understand that we don't want you to pay more. So we're going to show you how to use less. And here's the kicker. When you learn how to use less, you will have a much more comfortable and in an enjoyable place to live. Because there are two ways to bring that price mm-hmm. down. One so, way is the rate goes down. That ain't happening. Mm-hmm. The other way is you just use less. That's right. And if you remember back to our first talk, where we are the fastest drying part of the world's driest continent and we are running out of water, well, that's not reflected in the price. You can buy the cheapest six-pack of dodgy beer and it'll be more expensive than it would cost you to fill a swimming pool with water. Mm. Now, what is that saying to people? Well, it, it, people don't value it. Obviously. That's right. If, and if, it's not, if it doesn't cost you money, exactly. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you waste it. And the same with power. Now, there will be people who will be shaking their fists at me saying that. That is not. That's one side of the coin, which is we need to make power expensive, particularly when we move beyond what is a fair and reasonable consumption. I believe once you start using above what's been worked and we know exactly what is an average amount of water and energy consumption for whatever the household size – I believe as soon as you start using more than that, smash the hell out of their consumption. That's, your, that's on you. Yeah, that's right, because it's irresponsible. We have to think from a community perspective that, again, water is precious and so is power. You think that there's actually some uh, market forces we can put into play here to create an extremely uh, punitively tiered marginal tax rate, I guess, on water, You know, where it goes, you know, the first... So many mm. liters is really quite cheap because yeah. that's everyone Probably should even have subsidized. Su- yeah, everyone yep. should have a certain yep. amount of water, and then yep. as it goes up, it gets to a point where mate, you're paying for this as a one dollar per yep. liter sort of thing. We have a similar sort of uh, uh, understanding about speeding. You go five, ten kilometers above the speed limit, you get a certain amount. If you are incredibly reckless and you're driving 120 in a school zone, you, lose you probably license. lose your license. Yeah. So we understand that there is an exponential increase in your responsibility if if society is de- deemed that what you're doing is irresponsible for the greater good. And I would challenge, and I mentioned this in our first talk, you know, there is nothing more precious in a 
in a functioning civilization then access to beautiful, clean drinking water, limitless. Mm. It's the foundation of every wonderful civilization. So, okay. What's our first tip? Okay. We're gonna, so, I, think, I think our first tip should be talking about, let's, let's talk about improving our garden use. Okay, so water. And the most important thing that will shock most people is, firstly, most of the water that is used is not industry. It's not agriculture. It's our homes. It's residential. Yeah, 80% of the water that is is available is used by us as domestic users. And when you look at an individual house, the biggest chunk of water goes onto the garden. It's about 45 to 50% of the water. That surprises me. I always thought my showers were the... Mm. With the most guilt-formed part of my day. And that's why you have a grey water system, so you can lessen the guilt because you go, well, it's going out into the garden. But we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to learn Mm. how to effectively put Mm. that in place because councils are starting to mandate that as part of developments, but they seem so poorly thought out in terms of the required square meterage to effectively put these in. But we'll talk about that later. Okay, so if we assume that the biggest chunk of water goes into the garden, what we need to be embracing is what we call a water-wise garden. Now, Please suspend in your head what a water-wise garden is. Any garden can be a water-wise garden. And the key principles are, number one, we have to improve that soil. If people remember my first talk, I said we have the worst soils in the world. So you need to build that soil up because it's a little bit like if you had a fancy car and you were really keen about reducing your the amount of petrol you had to spend to keep the car running, but there were holes in the fuel tank. Mm. And you hadn't worked out why you were using so much pet- petrol every week. And someone went, um, have you known you've got all these holes in the fuel tank? Once you plug them up, you would just suddenly be so much happier and use a lot less water. So um, we need to go to Bunnings and buy a potting mix for a whole backyard? So, so for our gardens, potting mix is for pots. Mm. For the soil, we use soil improver or compost. And here's the big one. If you are on sandy soil, prick like, your ears like up somewhere here. somewhere in the city of Joondalup? Yep. Most of the Swan Coastal Plain. So if you're not in the hills, chances are, and if you're not near a river, chances are you have crappy sand. You must, must add clay. Clay, clay, clay. You add clay and compost, you will transform your sandy soil so it no longer leaks. Well, that would be the same for any new development because when you you think about a builder coming in, putting their pad down, they're normally using bricky sand. That's right. And we've done work with developers through the Water Corporation where we um, have gone in and done some project landscapes for the front verge. You know, you get the house and land package with the verge and we've done these transformational alternatives to what's rolled out normally and we build the soil up. We put the clay and the compost into the soil. So you build a decent soil. If you can then add the clay and the compost and the clay helps to hold the water and nutrients around the plants so you get much greater efficiency. When you can do that, improve the clay and the compost com- component, you can halve the amount of water you use. That's so funny because uh, clay is one of the most evil words yeah. around in development because we don't want clay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's it's like anything. It's a fantastic additive to turn your sand into something decent. And I use the analogy, if you were trying to bake bread or brew beer you know that you have to add a key component like yeast Mm. to get it to work. Yeah, and a lot of forms, yeast is a bad thing. That's right. So clay, think of the clay like you would the yeast in your brewing. You use the right amount, the right type, at the right um, application, 
and it transforms that process. Where are we going to get this stuff? If we can do it in a more cost-effective way, Easy. is there a couple of places around Perth where you think anywhere head there? Anywhere now, anywhere from Mitre 10 to Bunnings to Dawson's to Waldex, Better Pets and Gardens, they all now sell clay. If you want to buy it in bulk, you can get it from um, stock feeders, but anyone now sells clay. So if you're doing your own landscaping on a new build or a new development, don't just go straight in for the, the pots in the sand. You, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. That's right. Get yourself some good mix, play-based mix first. Indeed. And it's a little bit like, you know, we have the worst soils in the world. Someone once said, don't put your $20 plant in five-cent soil. Yeah. And we have five cents all. That's that's on a good day. You have to build that sand into decent soil. So you should be able to grab it in your hand, squeeze it, and when you release the pressure, it stays in a shape. Okay. Whereas your sand won't. Okay, it so that's, yeah. that's right. And number two is the water repellency. So that's that thin veneer of wax where the water won't go into the soil. And if you remember the 11th commandment from our first talk, that thou shalt use the water and the nutrients where, it, where they fall. So where it falls from the sky from rain, or you're adding irrigation. If that water doesn't go into the soil, the plant did not get a drink. So the water repellency, which is a thin veneer of wax, it's a naturally occurring process. We have the worst water repellency in the world, in this part of the world. So if you don't deal with that, break that wax, it means even if you can see the water dripping off the leaves of the plant, it's not going into the ground. Again, if you were... You cross the Simpson Desert and you were seriously dehydrated, but I put you in the shower and taped your mask your mouth closed with masking tape, would you rehydrate? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. So, so how we, are we fixing this? So we add wetting agents and the clay. The clay will naturally draw the water into the soil, but the first aid, the first aid for your crappy sand is a good wetting agent. And if people are wondering if they have water repellency, you have. So head out to your mate's house in Kalamunda with a wheelbarrow, fill it up, drive uh-huh. back to your place. Trouble with that is it can be diseased. Uh-huh. So we have three virulent um, pathogens in our soil. One is Phytophthora, which you might know as Jaradiabac. Yep. And if you transport from Kalamunda, Jaradal, where it's quite rife through the soil, and we're in the age of COVID, so we know about hygiene and distancing, don't do that. It's, it's so with plants. It's stay with a good, clean clay that you can buy from any of those garden centres or Bunnings Mitre Ten. Okay. So use a really good wetting agent and put that onto the landscape. Use your water-wise plants. So any good nursery now will tell you a water-wise plant is a plant that's been proven through studies to do well on one watering or less a week in summer. How amazing is that? Plants mm. that will thrive. I know plants that once are established, you'll never water them again. And they're some. beautiful. Okay, so my favorite group are, they're called the Eremophilus. Now, they're a group of plants that grow naturally through the rangelands and the deserts of WA, some of the hardest environments in the world. So they now have been cultivated. So they've been bred to enhance their flower and their shape and their form. And you can now put those in your garden. And again, they will happily thrive on no more than one watering a month. There are so many beautiful, tough plants like that that will come into that mix. Are these things that we would see driving up Indian Ocean Drive? Yep. And if you drive into T1, T2 Airport, if you drive into any of the new big facades for new subdivisions, if you look at any of the beautiful landscaping, 
you are now seeing as the pride and place are often these beautiful plants. A lot of them look like lavenders. Some of them look like lavenders. They have beautiful, they, the, the daintiness of their flowers belies the fact that these are super tough plants. Mm. Go to Kings Park. I urge everyone to go September, October to Kings Park and you will be blown away. We have the most beautiful plants anywhere on the planet. We just don't seem... It seems like Kings Park is sort of the Garden of Eden in, in WA, and you rarely see that proliferated around the suburbs. That's right. It just and seems like we don't appreciate that's the plants right. we've got. That's right. And you, you've hit the nail on the head, and that's a big part of what we do with our we workshops. We all want to make our backyard barley. Indeed. And that's where once you begin to see these plants for what they are, my first talk was about accepting where you are and embracing where you are. It's a very powerful spiritual or mental health strategy is to accept where you are and who you are and what are your circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with our landscaping. Once you begin to see that these are beautiful plants, you will fall in love with them and they will captivate you in a way that is just inconceivable without doing it okay so that first tip so we can keep a bit of concision to our what will be a very long uh, yes. uh segment yep, today yep. first tip is make sure that that soil is clay based and yep. we're using natives yep second tip let's go back inside the house talk about mm. internal fittings and yep. making it you know that more effective is it, is it about putting a timer on your kid's shower Yes, that helps, and and it's the, and it's the the my experience is it's the wives and and sometimes the husbands and all of that. So putting those timers, the little egg timers are good. They just give you that reminder. You can now get wells rated fittings, so you can now get water efficient fittings. They're mandatory in all new developments that you have to have these water wise fittings. Any plumber tap fitting place now sells them. It's wells W E L S minimum of four star. So you can get all those fittings. That'll make a big difference if you don't have room for a grey water system. Now, I'm a big fan of grey water. Tell me about a grey water system, what okay. it is. So a grey water system is using water from the laundry and the shower. It's not the toilet. It's not the sink. There's too much grease and all that other stuff. So it's the laundry and the shower. And it's called grey water because that's kind of what it looks like it's when it comes up. It's not black water. It's not no. clean Black water, water is, is sewage water. Yeah. And that's illegal to put into the garden in WA without a very sophisticated system. But you can buy fantastic grey water systems. I've got one at my place. I've had it for 10 years. And it's a self-cleaning system. It's about the size of a big esky. And it just puts water straight out through specially designed irrigation systems. It's called drip irrigation. And it's a purple color. That's the legal color for grey water. So the health department gets very antsy about us being in contact with treated waste water. So instead of having your black PVC irrigation you have you get a purple Bunnings, it's a purple color yep and it's very interesting yeah and it's every plumber knows about it every irrigation shop will sell it so these gray water systems fitted will be about two and a half thousand dollars now the caveat with the gray water you've got to have enough people using the laundry in the shower to make it work and you have to have enough room so two questions people need to ask themselves how many people are in the family and how much room do i have so if you are on your own or there's just two of you and you've got a tiny garden, grey water's probably not for you. But if you've got a decent sized block, at least two or 300 square metres of garden, and you've got a big rambling family, knock your socks off. Get a grey water system because that it will, will be prob- cost effective. It will. You'll use probably half the scheme water that you would have traditionally. So that- what happens? How do you then make sure you're not just... Or if you've got a, your normal sort of solenoids and, mm. and uh, retic system, yep. Yep. how do you make sure you're not just overdoing it with that 
given that you've got this great booster with the grey water? Does yeah. it feed in somehow? No. So the grey water will be a separate irrigation system. But my experience is that most – so I have areas of my garden where the only irrigation it gets is the grey water. So the key is that if you're going away in the middle of summer and it's stinking hot and no one's there, then your, your plants will suffer. But if you have a grey water system that's going to be continually used, particularly over summer, then that can be a fantastic substitute for traditional irrigation. It's about half my watering needs is through grey water. Can it be used on all sorts of plants mm-hmm. and grass? Does my it, experience is lawn, it's, it's challenging because you're not allowed to spray grey water onto gardens, okay. uh, onto trafficable areas like lawn. So I would say keep your grey water for things like fruit trees and natives. And that will be fine. Yeah, and then your normal retic sits on the grass out the front. Yep. yep. Okay, cool. Uh, what, about, what about rainwater tanks? Whenever a lot of people think mm. about rainwater tanks, it's these big mm. cylindrical things that mm. take up. And you know, we think about urban infill, right? Yep. We don't have a lot of space for mm. these huge cylindrical yep. rainwater tanks. There's some new technology in the profiles of these things, isn't there? There is. So there's now slim uh, water tanks. Some are called water wall, where they, they piece together like Meccano, or they click together, and they might be about... 70 or 80 centimetres wide. Okay, the thing about grey water, I love grey water, it's fantastic stuff, but don't think of it in an urban setting as your irrigation system because when we desperately need irrigation is when we don't get rain. So you might in an urban setting have a 2,000 litre rainwater tank, which is probably about as big as most people can get fitting at the side of the house or something like that. When you put your irrigation cycle on just for one day, you're generally for a typical average size garden in Perth using about 1,500 litres of water just for one cycle. So in other words, your your rainwater system might last you half a week summer irrigation mm, that's 750 bottles of milk that's right it's not it's it's <laughs> not designed to water your garden if you're on five ten acres and you can get a two hundred thousand liter rainwater tank yeah that might help you but in the urban setting the rainwater is to give you beautiful drinking water and i say plumb into the laundry and or the toilet and then it just goes straight back into the gray water yeah so it's, you're sort of getting a double use yeah. out of it. And when you think about it, the water is coming from the, the air, gravity. It is zero carbon cost. Mm. So if you're capturing that and sticking it into, because we are using beautiful, some of the most expensive water in the world, desalinated water, mm. to flush down turds. Yeah. It's, you know, again, people will look back and go, that is insane. This, that was insane. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So when we start to really value water, when we really see how precious it is, that's the sort of thing we can do. So rainwater becomes a fantastic way to reduce that impact. Uh, next one, simple one. Probably don't have to speak too much on this. Keeping our aircon between okay. 22 and 24 degrees, right? Yeah, so power bills. Yeah, so aircon is a big one. The sweet spot for air conditioning is 22 to 24 degrees. It doesn't so, need to be 16. Even nah. though, isn't it funny that we can put it down there, though? Well, it is. And the thing we need to say to people is for every degree you go above or below that 22 to 24, so if you have it at 16 degrees in summer when it should be 24, for every degree, so that's 8 degrees less, you're using 10% more power for every degree you go above or below. So in summer, if you crank it to 16, you're using 80% more mm, power. You're nearly doubling your power bill. And worse still, and I learned this from air conditioner installers when we used to do workshops at the Home Expo, you're running, it'd be like running your car at, at 
5,000 revs. Yeah. You're going to burn the motor out. The aircon motor is not designed to run efficiently. It's like having your blender on pulse full exactly. ball. Exactly. Yeah. So you will burn out the motors. You'll use massive amounts of power. So keep it at between 22 and 24, 22 in winter and 24 in summer. I think that's, that's and that's I think everyone can achieve that, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, and and also I think the good technology these days is about having the timers yes, and, yep. and being able to have, you know, the apps even yes, that allow yep. you to turn it on and off. Yep. Because you're not even wasting t- waste yeah, it's so so good these days. I think the technology is getting better and better and we keep working towards that because we need it. We do. Next one. This is huge for me. This is what we're always thinking about when we're d- developing mm. uh, building and this is part of planning as well. Yeah. Planning officers are good with this. Yeah. Building for Northern Light. Yeah, magnificent. And when you've spent time in a passive solar home, you will never go back to dodgy houses that we have. Mate, they sell for way more. Oh, and absolutely. And, you know, we until we bought the, the uh, energy rating in to houses, so it's now mandatory six-star rated homes, as you know, until then, the average house was probably one or two stars. Would you accept 10 or 20% result for anything else in life and yet that's where we live a lot and, of people still do and it's appalling okay so orientation is very important i say to anyone get the compass out and everyone has a compass it's in your phone and if you don't know how to access it i guarantee your kids do find the compass walk around your house find out where northeast and northwest is because that's where the winter sun is and you need to make sure that that arc between the northeast and the northwest is where you let the winter sun in Find out where the southeast and the southwest is. That's where the morning sun is going to rise in summer. And that's where your house is going to be under attack. And we mentioned off air that the sun needs to be seen as Jekyll and Hyde. In winter, at this time of the year, a warm, sunny day is just magnificent. Isn't it, aren't we in one of those periods right now where when we're in the shade, it's freezing? Yeah. And when we're in the sun, it's the it's best beautiful. day of, in the world. Fast forward a few short months and we will be cursing that sun. When the sun hits your windows and your walls in summer, that's going to translate into heat coming into your house, which means you need to use the air conditioner. Mm. So the sun, particularly the morning and the afternoon sun, should never be hitting any windows and walls on your house. If you're serious about reducing your energy consumption and you can put external shading External shading is very important. Trees are great. But any window, the weak link in the chain for your house are windows. Yep. One square meter of unprotected glass. So again, I'm doing this on radio, but it doesn't help very much or podcast. One square meter of glass. That's not huge. If the summer sun is hitting that window full, the heat coming into the house, that room is equivalent to a one bar heater on in that room. Mm. So when you see these city beach... It's a microscope on the It is. That's right. That's it. And when you see these, you know, McMansion staring out over the ocean with these massive windows, that room will probably get to about 50 degrees in summer because the heat is coming in and you can't stop it until you do external shading. And that's where the aircons come in, ramping up all the costs. That's right. And the crazy thing is that somewhere coal is being burned, heating up the planet to keep dumb houses cool. Double, triple glazing windows. Double glazing is magnificent, but it still is nowhere near as effective as external shading. So even double, and I have double glazing in, in my whole house. Double glazing is great, but if the summer sun is hitting those windows, it slows down the transference, but it still happens. And the kicker is mm. it's very good at stopping the heat leaving again. That's what it's really good That's at. That's the point, yeah. So... If you have beautiful double-glazed north-facing windows but you don't protect them in summer, your house is going to be even hotter. Mm, Good point. 
So uh, the other thing with energy, making slashing your power bills, so external shading, internal shading in winter. So now we want to keep the heat inside and reduce those gaps. I think it was David Suzuki who said that if you add up all the gaps that are between the windows and the doors and under the, the, the sills and the eaves, if you added them all up in a badly designed house, which is most houses in Perth, the whole would be about the size of a basketball. So we are trying to keep a house cool in summer or warm in winter with this great big hole. It's tiny little gaps, but they all add up to the same thing. So plug the gaps. Make sure you have really good insulation, not just in the ceiling, but you insulate in the walls if you can, under the well, floor. Well, those are things that you generally won't get from a builder. If you don't ask for it, they that's won't right. insulate your walls. And that's why it's really important. You're going to live in that house, not them. And to be honest, they don't care. They're just no. mass producing a house. You need to, in, and it's the same with the house and land package landscaping you need to be saying to them i need you to improve the soil because if you don't just like a bad house you're just going to use massive amounts of water or energy to keep it comfortable now that i guess it moves into that last last uh, tip i guess it is passive soil landscaping mm, mm. i guess that means that we should be looking to have some height in our landscaping mm-hmm. where there is uh, the northern yep the northern light and deciduous so that arc between the northeast and the northwest, we need to remember as well that the sun changes not only intensity and how long it's affecting us. So in Perth in summer, we get about 14 hours of sunshine. In winter, we get about nine hours of sunshine. And the angle of the sun changes. So now, after June the 21st, the angle of the sun was 34 degrees. December the 21st, it's right up to almost vertical and that's why we get, it gets so hot. The True. vector is just yes. so much wider. Yeah. And so if you have um, trees to the north, and again, the right plant in the right place for the right reasons, between the northeast and the northwest, that arc, you need deciduous plants so that they lose their leaves in winter. So you get that beautiful flood of, of winter warmth. And in summer, you've got the canopy, which is going to stop that hitting your house. I think these are some fantastic tips, mate, uh, where... We're 26 minutes in, but I tell you what, I could go for another 26. I think it's one of, one of those topics where you can just get so deep in the detail. But just generally having these things in mind, either when you're building, please think about mm. uh, your orientation. And, and even if it's just about making money, yeah. recognize that the buyers oh. will be looking at this thing. There's nothing worse than a dark, dingy yeah, land, you know, living area, right? D- in, in ACT, which was the first area in Australia to bring in mandatory disclosure, so you had to not just get the termite report and the, um, the, the report showing you had the hardwired RCDs, the um, smoke detectors. You have to have an energy efficiency report. That's now mandatory, so it's exposing the lid on McMansions. Yeah. Um, those houses, energy efficient houses, are selling for 10 to 15% more because people go, oh, my God, this is going to be such a – Better house, lower cost, and it's more comfortable. Well, it's finally becoming a factor now. I think 20, Mm. 30 years ago, whether you spent 20% or 30% more on your bills Mm. didn't make that much of a difference Mm. because our bills weren't that big. Yes. Now they're a factor. It's like buying a more energy-efficient car because petrol prices are are starting to become a factor. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think we recognize that in our house, those bills start to become more expensive than you know, rates, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah. The rates yes. are big enough. So right. when the consumption on top of that comes through, we're spending hundreds of dollars a month just to yeah. own a house. And you think of corona, and it's not so bad over here, but you think of lockdown, what they now know for energy consumption, it's plummeted in the CBDs because people are not working in offices, but it's skyrocketed in homes. So anything we can do to reduce the power consumption, and again, as I said, the, key, the, the real kicker is... 
It makes the house more comfortable and livable when it's naturally cool in summer and naturally warm in winter. Last one, it has to be the colour of our house and, mm. and driveways, yeah. right? It's just been, I think it's been the cool thing to do for the last 15 years is make yeah. our roofs charcoal and even our driveways. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Look, if you could flick a switch so it was white in winter, uh, sorry, white in um, summer and black in winter, yeah, that would be great. But a hot, dark coloured tile roof will get up to 80 degrees. Water boils at 100. So if you have 200 square metres of a dark roof, you are essentially saying, I love big power bills. I love giving money to Dakin Air Conditioning. Please heat my house up so my family can only survive in this house by using a massive whirring air conditioner. There's a reason test cricketers wear white. Yes, indeed. And people often say, so getting to your point about, unless you're English, I remember going to one of the Ashes tests and all the English cricketers were wearing dark caps. And I said, they clearly haven't had any physiologist who's West Australian based going, man, they're going to fry their brains. I mean, I liked it because it meant they (laughs) they perform poorly. But, but, you know, yes, absolutely. If you live in this part of the world, you know, white and you have big um, protection, wide brim hat, the house needs to be seen the same way. So when I bought my house, the Hammy Hill Sustainable Home, well, we made it the Hammy Hill Sustainable Home. We painted the roof white with a special paint, which has got a re- insulation in it and the albedo effect. It reflects back the, the heat in summer. That made the house about three to four degrees cooler in summer. I think that's something that can easily be mandated across planning mm. with new house and land estates. And some, like I know Alchemos, uh, which was a Lend-Lease development, they, uh, they mandated that the houses had to be light-coloured roofs. So getting the last bit, which is the thermal mass. So I'm a big fan of reducing the hard surfacing around your house. So imagine a stinking hot day in Perth. You know, it got to 45 degrees, the sun goes down and everyone goes... Hallelujah, that day's finished. Well, if you have surrounded your house with charcoal grey paving or you've got bitumen or, God forbid, artificial turf, all for that 16 hours of heating during the day, that beautiful material has just been quietly absorbing that heat and releases it back out. So if you walk out onto that paving at 2 a.m. the next morning, still warm, still warm. Yep. what does that mean? It means your air conditioners are sucking in warm air. And you're air. starting warm the next day. That's right. And, and your whole house is going to be hotter and you have to use more power, more energy, more coal being burnt, heating up the planet to basically keep your badly designed home and landscape cool. That's why we say the garden should be the biggest room and the natural air conditioner because it's only that shading with trees and shrubs, ground covers, and things like shade sail, shade cloth, all of those things will help to cut down that insidious negative impact for you and the family. Mate, fantastic. I really appreciate mm. it today. Uh, Pleasure. We're going to have to keep having more of these. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris Ferreira from Forever Project. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Okay, let's move on to the suburb spotlight. And today we are talking about one of Perth's most expensive suburbs, most affluent suburbs, aspirational suburbs. It's Cottesloe. A lot of people have been waiting for this episode. I've had many personal messages saying, do Cottesloe, do Cottesloe. And today we're doing it. And I'm very thankful to have one of Western Suburbs' number one agents. It's Jason Renoff. Thanks for coming back in again, mate. It was Swanbourne, and now it's Cottesloe. Yeah, appreciate you uh, taking the time to invite us in, Trent. What's the difference? Well, look, I mean, really, there's not a great deal of difference. I mean, they're, uh, obviously, it's a name and a postcode, and that might mean some to many. But actually, in, in, in dollar terms, and I guess locational benefits and otherwise, there isn't a great deal of difference. It's, a, I think, a common misconception. 
you look at the ocean front of Swanbourne, it's every bit as expensive as the ocean front in Cottesloe. It's the same ocean as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's the same colour water. Many would argue that the northern end has, has got, which Swanbourne is obviously a continuation of, uh, has got stronger locational benefits. So perception's a big thing. A lot of people will think that Cottesloe is going to be more expensive, but I think that's due to the fact that if you look at the geometric shapes of the two suburbs, Cottesloe fans out to the ocean front. So it's got a very wide frontage to the ocean where Swanbourne, in contrast, is the exact opposite. It's like a piece of pie with the narrowest point on the ocean front. So the closer you get to the ocean front, there's less properties. That will sell in that higher price. Yeah, so there's there's not a lot of data. The blocks in Swanbourne are a bit smaller as well, aren't they? Uh, a bit more terracy. Uh, well, there's a section, the Allen Park Precinct. Uh, I've just sold three there in recent weeks, and they're typically 306 square metre green tidal lot. There's 278 square metre lots, but they're not on the ocean side in the sort of Cottesloe Village Precinct, which is in between it's the eastern side of Cottesloe, which a lot of people forget about, but between the highway and the railway line, close proximity to Napoleon Street and whatnot, certainly growing immensely in popularity. They're 278, 279 square metre lots, but on the ocean side, more commonly 500 to, to 600 say but again it's that representation of the ocean front and, and the ocean views I guess one further comment is that certainly it's probably true to say that the Cottesloe section has more favorable topography which then presents greater opportunities for ocean views particularly a bit higher yeah, it ramps up, particularly in the southern end. Uh, Cardiac Hill, uh, Princess Street there, Pier Street. It just really ramps up, which just gives, you know... Great. More houses, more views. Exactly, yeah. Where Swanbourne's a bit flatter. Cottesloe benefits from the name, from the beach, the accessibility to it. A lot more people would drive through it and therefore think, oh, I'd like to live here one day. Whereas Swanbourne being such a protected and private suburb... Uh, can sometimes just be out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Which is, I, has its own benefits. Yeah, look, it, totally. And and you're 100% right there, Trent. That That's very accurate. Cottesloe's got the brand. It's got the awareness and all the rest of it. And and I've had people, clients at times, ridicule me for suggesting that, that the prices are the same. But the data reflects that they are the same. In fact, one street, North Street, which which borders Swanbourne and Cottesloe, the data, I'd suggest, is, is higher on the Swanbourne side of the road. Uh, when we come to bringing families in here, there isn't a Cottesloe Senior High School. Where yeah, are kids going to so, school from, from pre-primary up in these places? Especially sure. if, I mean, look, the demographic says if you can live in Cottesloe, you probably can afford kids to go to private school. But what if they can't? That's fair. Yeah, my kids... Uh, Personally, they go to the local North Cottesloe Primary School. Had a great experience there. Lovely peer group and I think a great school. They've then moved on to you know private schools at the end of that or that's the plan and, and my eldest has already. But certainly a lot of the kids, uh, my second son is in his final year at North Cot this year and it seems that probably, well, I think a lot of the kids, if not at least half, are going to Shenton, which is got a very good reputation and bit of a drive though isn't it it's not nah. like the local high school well i mean it's I, one high school for the whole western suburbs really yeah i guess so but it's not a long way away it's on the train line and it's a pretty easy commute from cot so it's not it's not like it's a big deal and i guess it's a, it, it seems it's very well regarded i think academic being its specialty and it's scoring like no questions well. as to the quality of the school yeah but i think you most people wouldn't have to travel three or four suburbs to get to their local state school and the suburbs aren't big, 
Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. the cool thing is, you've got a train station that goes straight from, straight uh, you know, straight from your front door, nearly in Cottesloe, to their front door in Shenton Park. So it's not like it's a huge commune. No, but if you go back to, you know, in years predating the introduction of Shenton, uh, no disrespect to anyone, but I think the the state, the the previous state-run high schools, secondary, were not. I don't think held in anywhere near the same regard as Shenton is. So geographically, perhaps perhaps you are correct, it's further away, but I think you know the, the quality of education seems to be perceived to be a lot higher. But you are spoilt for choice as a, as a child and as a parent. If you want to put the checkbook on the table... If the checkbook's on the table, yeah. there are a number of girls' schools within a kilometre. It's ridiculous yeah. how dense the girls' schools are there. Yeah. And then you've got Scotch, you've got Christchurch, you know, take your pick. Yeah, John twenty thirty two. Yeah, and and I guess in more recent times, uh, economic rationality and foolish not to admit that the world's been a harder place for some for the last decade. Um, there hasn't been as much you know money flying around perhaps, and 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 that's perhaps also one of the reasons I think Shenton's been a lot more popular. I think John twenty third is one of the harder schools to get into. Um, Iona, I know, is very popular for the girls as mm. well, and it's Catholic based school. It's it's a bit more affordable. I've heard nothing but positive comments regarding the school as well. When it comes to people who are coming into the suburb, where are they coming from, and at what age are they generally coming in? A lot of migrants, obviously from oil and gas. A lot of medical migration too. So almost in the minority. If you if if you I mean. If you're a local. I'd suggest you are an absolute minority. Uh, you know, definitely that's been my, my experience. Um, not to say that's a bad thing, but um, yeah, so many new people to the area. And in fact, if there is downside to the change of rating and prosperity of the area, um, it is, uh, it's not nothing against the people that have come in, but it has pushed a lot of other people out uh, because, you know, if you grew up in the area, my vintage, not a lot of people who actually are going to continue on have continued on in the same suburb. So what you're what you're suggesting is Cottesloe wasn't as affluent a suburb 40 years ago as it is now. Mate, you're the poor cousin in the western suburbs. I mean, you know, definitely when I was a kid, Peppermint Grove, Darkheath, Nedlands, Claremont were a big step above Cottesloe and Swanwood. I mean, even when I started in the industry 29 years ago, Cottesloe was was regarded by many as a scruffy beachside suburb full of a lot of rentals. A lot of farmers owned property, holiday stay by the beach, you know, this sort of stuff. And, and it was probably a fair comment. There are still a lot of block value properties in the area. And I think a lot of people do give up a lot in the way of improvements to live in, in the location, perhaps reflecting that they put a higher rating on on the lifestyle than they do on having a third or a fourth bathroom. Because if you look in the northern beach suburbs, to contrast, one of my reps predominantly sells in the northern beach suburbs and just about every house has everything yeah exactly <laughs> media right. room four bathrooms all that we're quite like that's probably because it's i think it's because you know we've all got a budget a pie as you would put it right and the more percentage of that pie that's taken up by land value the less percentage of that pie can be put into the third bathroom or the extra activity room yeah and just dependent on where it's important for you to live based on, I guess, your perception of your social status, where you grew up as well, you'll make a decision as to whether you'll make that compromise to live in Cottesloe or you want the mega mansion or the much bigger two-story house to live in North Beach. Again, they're both the same ocean. They both have fantastic beach lifestyles. They both have fantastic bakeries and coffee shops and and surf life-saving clubs. But if you want to live in Cottesloe, you're probably paying the extra meal just for the land. Yeah, yeah, you look for sure. And, you know, you're starting off 
off at three grand a meter and rapidly accelerating from there and the main body of Cottesloe you're referring to you know previously perhaps that is where the sacrifice is made on the improvements then you go forward west of Broome Street you might suggest Broome Street heading west so what I would refer to as the immediate beach precinct you know you go into the beach on foot with a towel on your shoulder you've perhaps got some views Babers, 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 undies. Yeah, that's right. In that precinct, it's it's that's a different story. Eight and a half million dollar properties, ten million dollar properties. There's, there'd be fifteen million dollar properties through there. One fellow just purchased a house at the other end of the street for uh, I think eight, eight and a half, and then bought the house next door for in the threes. So that's a momentary residence while he constructs the one around the corner. Uh, which is on the oceanfront, Swanbourne actually, not Cot. But, you know, they said there is a more moderate midsection of Cottesloe and then it is truly an exponential curve once you head west. I think Cottesloe represents a lot of the new money in Perth, or at least the last 10 years worth of new money. Uh, as we you know, would recognize Peppermint Grove, Dalkeith, that's very much the old money. It's a lot of crusty dinosaur sort of lifestyle around there. Not a lot of amenity when you think about it. There's obviously the location, but the amenity is actually quite low. And you compare that to a bit more of the township availability and obviously the, the ocean and the coffee shops and the vibe in Cottesloe. You feel younger. You feel a bit more. The sun's on you a bit more. And therefore, a lot of that money at the expense of your Dalkeiths and your Peppermint Groves has been migrated over to Cottesloe, that choice where you might have someone come over from South Africa or, or the United Kingdom with quite a bit of cash. They're making a choice about probably those three suburbs and Swanbourne. And what we're recognizing is a lot of them are seeing that lifestyle value because it's all the same. It's a river or ocean. It's all Western suburbs. It's not really a different, same school zones. They're choosing Cottesloe. And that has to be a lifestyle reason. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're right. And and from my own personal experience, you know, as I say, having grown up in the local area, worked there all my working life, I don't think there's another suburb that the perception or the rating has changed so significantly. For example, most of the mates that I grew up with uh, grew up in Dalkeith and Nedlands, and virtually well, everyone I can think of at the moment lives in either Cottesloe or Swanbourne. That would have been seen as an unusual move or a backward step some 40 years ago. People would have thought you're strange if you're moving from Dalkeith or Nedlands to Cottesloe. They would have thought that you're either what, what getting... What went wrong at bus- in your business? Yeah, you're getting yeah. divorced or going break or you're slightly eccentric or whatever, but... Now it's an equal choice and it's a personal choice and people are making that choice. Well, Dalkeith and Nedlands, you could argue, is quite affordable compared to on a, on a rate per metre. We had know, Mark Anderson in here... Uh, six weeks ago and we both agree I mean I've purchased in Netherlands just off of Steve's oh, yeah. last year yep. and you look at the square meterage rate in the western suburbs there isn't a better square meterage rate especially still with access to the, to great amenity um, than Netherlands it doesn't get any better per square meter and I think a reason for that is it has sucked a lot of potential buyers towards Cottesloe over the last 10 years at the expense of a Netherlands and Dalkeith yeah. and it's because in my opinion there has been no gentrification, there has been no rezoning, there has been no investment into those two suburbs, that peninsula, for at least 25 years. So people that look at that and look at Broadway and go, Jesus Christ, there's nothing going on here. They look at Waratah Ave and go, Jesus, a bit old around here. And it, you know, it's the new zoning, hopefully, that my belief is, that came in last year of your R60s, your R80s around these suburbs, which should inject some of that new cafe strip that you know younger people who can afford that price point because in a place like Netherlands and Dalkeith there is only one price point it's quarter acre older house in the ones twos or three million dollars and that's a problem because you need variety now if we bring that back to Cottesloe what is that variety outlook yeah well I mean I'm getting a lot of those uh, empty nesters that 
you're just referring to because of the relatively homogenous offering, uh, you know, in place at Netherlands and Dakar. I'm getting a lot of people, I've uh, just sold a couple of places to people who have come across from Netherlands and Dakar, and looking at 300 square metre lots, paying four grand a metre. Certainly that's not cheap, but, you know, you're getting in a great spot. Cottesloe, it does range from 279 square metres at a common minimum through a whole precinct, mainly on, on the eastern side of the line. And then commonly through sort of 550 to, to say 615, 640 on the ocean side. Anything above 640 or 650 square metres in Cottesloe is considered a big block. People ringing up wanting a 1,000 square metre block, they're pretty few and far between. I mean, regardless of your budget, you'll find it very difficult to, to, to locate one. Let's talk about that budget. What is the cheapest residence that I could buy in Cottesloe? I can sell you one today, Trent, for 1.1 million or from 1.1 million. Uh, so you're rarely getting a first home buyer coming in. Is, is well, that the case? You know, I would argue or suggest that in the time that I've been doing this, I mean, the top end has gone up substantially more recently. What was three and a half is now four and a half. It's, you know, it's jumped. Um, but the bottom end, you know, around that early millions, uh, when I started doing this, I look at, say, the, the, the ratios between, say, Cottesloe and, say, Mount Hawthorne, which I always used to put people into at a price point great suburb a house in uh, in mount hawthorne literally was the price of a two-bedroom apartment in cottesloe they were the options i would say to people 130 grand i can sell you a two-bedroom flat in cot if you don't want a flat my advice would be let's go to mount hawthorne and buy a and i literally did that myself uh, it was only point. in the year about 1998 2000 where you could buy a house in Mount Hawthorne for that price. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I, I bought one for 130-odd. Great suburb. That's where I moved out to first and, and sort of edged my way back. But um, great suburb. It's just a bit far away for work for me. And uh, um, But now, if you look at the ratios, that two-bedroom unit in Cot is maybe 500. You could buy one cheaper, but 500, let's say. Mm. You can't buy a house in Mount Hawthorne for 500. You'd struggle to buy one for a million, yet you can buy a house in Cottesloe for a million. So in actual fact, the bottom end relatively to Mount Hawthorne, uh, the bottom end of Cottesloe and indeed Swanbourne at the bottom end uh, is comparatively, I think, better value than it's been in 20 years. So I, I actually think there's an arbitrage at the moment at that entry point. You know, because Worst house, best suburb? Yeah, I mean, look, you can spend a million dollars. I mean, Trent... You, you, I'm sure you cover a wider area than I do, so I'm sure you'd have a greater expertise across the metropolitan area. I'm very focused in a small area, but you, you would, I'm sure, you'd confirm you can spend a million dollars in virtually every suburb in Perth now. I mean, mm. you can. Where back in the day, an entry level house in Cottesloe, you just couldn't spend that much money in certainly in a lot of west suburbs. of the freeway. You would definitely find data for pretty much every suburb if the house was big enough. Yeah, yeah. Where you could at least spend seven figures, and that would be at the top end. But you could head 20 30 k's north of the city and you know you'll have multi-million dollar houses there are four million dollar houses in Malalu. yeah 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 dianella's lots of dianella's would have two million dollar houses yeah, right yeah, totally, and, and that's yeah. obviously based a lot on build price but what you're saying is again to get into Cottesloe, it is still an accessible price with a realistic house on it yeah and, and i mean again if i was a buyer in the early millions i would definitely be looking at Cottesloe. you know but the i i guess what i've observed is that a lot of people with their budget don't go okay i've got 1.2 million to spend what's the best suburb i can buy a lot of people are wedded to a particular area they grew up in dianella or they grew up in darkheath or they grew up in wembley whatever it might be and you understand that because it's not just about money it's about your lifestyle it's about your family what, it's about and what your you know yeah what? you're doing well for yourself and you grew up in mount lawley it's probably unlikely you're looking to cottesloe unless you have a real penchant for that area or unless you work there 
you know even if you did have the money to go there it, it, it's like anywhere most of the suburbs i speak to with local agents the price point might be seven hundred thousand dollars and you could go to many suburbs in perth for seven hundred thousand dollars but most people that the evidence shows that buy in that suburb they grew up in that suburb or the suburb next to it yeah yeah exactly what that demonstrates though is as a buyer who's looking to either get in or understand their market when they're selling one day is that your market probably on most cases unless it's an international market will most likely be someone who has grown up in the area and therefore understanding what has done well around you and why is is actually not too hard you know you look at Cottesloe there's a lot of Hamptons theme going on you're probably not seeing the same houses as you are in City Beach which is a lot more glitzy glamour Florida sort of house Cottesloe is a bit more understated it's a bit older of a suburb and there's a bit more about the the more quality appointments and and a bit more understated in that space right when you think about a young couple who's got skills and great interior design aspect a lot of the houses in Cottesloe have still have fantastic bones to even buy in the worst house in the best street and renovate that to their heart's content yeah, and a lot of people, that's that's certainly been an increasing trend that people are getting the bungalow and putting that money on the back end of it rather than knocking it down. And to me personally, these aren't, heri- aren't heritage listed homes, so they, the client could knock them down. It's nice to retain that fabric of the suburb that attracted people there in the first place. Let's get on to development. I think we could spend time talking about more price points, but the reality is anywhere from 500 grand, but more specifically a mill, based on whatever you want, it'll be build price plus plus, you could go into the millions. It's an easy answer. Let's go into development because I don't see much going on in Cottesloe outside of the knockdown build a mansion strategy, which isn't a strategy, it's more of a preference because you've got the money. What could be done? What is being done? I'm, you know, I'll Google Town of Cottesloe draft planning scheme. There isn't one for me to find. What are we missing in Cottesloe that could really be that missing middle? There's a couple of apartment blocks that have sort of been mooted on Marine Parade at the moment. I'm not sure that they're going to get up. I think they're trying to do some pre-sales at the moment. I haven't heard much in the way of sort of sales. But essentially, you know, one thing that's enabled the suburb to maintain its its fabric uh, is that the block sizes, as I said earlier, are quite small anyway there's not a lot of big blocks there's not a so, lot of development opportunities no there's not because i mean it's typically r20 mm. and there aren't any thousand square meter lot the few that do come up typically what i found is is that the end user you know ma and pa and the three kids will pay more money than the developer they just want the big block and they'll pay they'll pay more money than the developer that's a massive just, reality the, the higher you up you get in price point the more risk there is as a developer that you're actually going to compete with the prevailing market because there's more it's more likely that the owner occupied market will be willing to pay more which is there's very much a strong relationship there between price points so the lower down you go the more likely you'll be able to compete as a developer the higher up you get you either have to be doing some really dense stuff or you're probably going to lose to an owner occupier who's willing to just get in yeah and that's what's there was a group that was certainly pushing pretty hard to get some zoning concessions and, and well, a you policy think along there. Napoleon Street, Station Street, it's pretty low rise for what it could be. Yeah, yeah, and it's not, you know, yeah, and it's to a be commercial f- area. I can't see what, what negative impact it would have to be able to stack six or seven stories of apartments on top of the you know boat shed market or something like that and, and they'd have great views as well of, of the ocean and not blocking anyone else's views yeah yeah you're right i mean my offices um the shops that i've got that you know i've had a few approaches from people wanting 
purchase my site and the one next door and that sort of thing for that sort of opportunity. But then what their problem is, there's people like me sitting there who are happily running their business and don't want to move. No I mean, disruption. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be disrupted. I like sitting where I'm sitting in, in my old shop and, and it works well enough for me. And, and a lot of the other owners, uh, frustration uh, that I've borne as an agent, um, although I'm part of it as an owner, is there's just a lot of sitting owners who... Yeah, fair enough they're entitled to just don't want to sell happy just ticking along you know just uh, uh, happy with the, the yield yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, we're probably not even worried about the yield greatly yeah. i'd reckon because the yield wouldn't be good it's it's not uh, trust me yeah <laughs> but, let's talk about median house price the last question arbitrary number as always means nothing but what is it yeah around two million what are you getting for two mil in Cottesloe, and what would you buy yourself if you had two mil in your pocket in the main body of Cottesloe, you're at three grand a metre. So what comes to mind to me at that price point is, you know, Brighton Street, Lyon Street, Not a fl- wouldn't be a flash house. You know, you've got a couple of hundred grand into improvements, but a fantastic spot, you know, sensational locational benefits. Um, you know, you're going to be from 1.85 to, I've sold a couple recently between 1.85 and 2.2. Certainly, you know, good functional family homes. If you wanted to step back a little bit from that, down the down the hill a little bit more, a bottom end of Florence Street and Hawkstone, I think that section between Marmy and, and Curtin Avenue for the value there, slightly smaller blocks, about 1.5 for your block value. Sold one recently for 1.65, certainly you know, a dated but very habitable accommodating family home. So that's a little bit more affordable again. So, you know, I think that there's some really, there are some very strong locations. If you're willing to not have that super sexy, flashy house, but you just want a functional family home that's perhaps a little bit understated and perhaps dated or modest, the lifestyle to me, you can't see you ever going back on your investment and how I see at the moment, the differential between West of Broom Street and East is double what it normally is. So you go back the last 10, 20 years, at the moment it will cost you two, two and a half million dollars to move forward one street. It's double the price. Is that because the houses are better? No, I'm saying block value. Yeah, well, so block value... So in, does that mean that the east of, of Broom Street has dropped or west has increased? West has increased notably and that's sort of in that ocean view sort of precinct. Over the hill, essentially. Yeah, over the hill, yeah. first June sort of thing. And But to me, there's a clear arbitrage opportunity at that sort of sub $2 million level. I think it just screams of absolute fantastic opportunity because, I mean, clearly one or two things are going to happen. That ratio has never been like that in 50 years. So one or two things I'd suggest is going to happen. Either the ocean front's going to go down or the eastern end's going to go up or a bit of both. Either way, and I don't think the ocean front's going to go down because the buyers are lined up. It's just shortage of stock that's preventing it's sales r- Yeah, there. it's ridiculous. The Cottesloe is really the canary in the coal mine for me. It's, it was the first suburb in Perth to start rising back in 2017. And that's because there's always a stream of people with money looking, especially coming from somewhere. And there's just not enough people looking to sell. Well, if you're going to lob into Perth and life's treated you well, and you've got kids, well, where are you going to want to live? You're going to want to live where the majority of the good schools are. That's an absolute priority. Well, the majority of the best schools in WA are in a very you know short travelling distance from Cottesloe. And most people are going to want to live by the beach. I mean, I grew up in Cottesloe. I had no idea. I thought all the beaches looked like that, mm. you know. No, the beaches in Western Australia are 
by far the best beaches around the world. Oh, spectacular, you know, white sandy beaches, you know, and, it's, and it does create a nice sense of community, like anywhere you've got a nice park or something. Um, but yeah, I do think there's great opportunity in Cottesloe at the moment at that entry level, at two, two specific sections, that entry level in the early millions and around that $2 million bracket, just, you know, like one street back from Broome Street or even sections of Broome Street, ridiculously good value. There's been sales there around the $2 million mark, which just seems crazy to me. I, I, I personally felt they were undersold uh, significantly. But you come back to Brighton Street, one street further back, block value 1.8, 1.9. Move forward two streets, it's $4.5 million at block value. So that, that ratio is just distorted in my opinion. And I think the people who buy in those sections, you know, just stepping back, uh, I think the market's going to favour them well as, you know, when things kick into gear again. And, and naturally, what, what I've said to people for many years, and I'm sure I'm not the only agent who says it, uh, who has said it rather, is that the price increases in Cottesloe typically follow the sea breeze. I mean, they often used to start in the south because that was the money down to Cottesloe. Now it's all across the front. Um, but then they just, you know, push back street by street. And, you know, before you know it, they're over the hill and then, you know, running back towards, you know, the eastern end of the suburb. But uh, Jason, fantastic uh, insights. It's obviously, you know your area so well. Uh, and it's good to have an agent actually push out today some buying opportunities that make sense and explain why. Very rare to hear that. I really appreciate your time and the listeners very much appreciate your time mate hopefully have you in again for another one thanks trent yeah appreciate the opportunity thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show if you've only just joined the conversation you can catch up by heading over to our website perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our facebook page don't forget to tune in next monday at 7 a.m for more expert insights local analysis and suburb spotlights happy hunting